Let's pray together. God, we're grateful for your presence here, grateful for your Holy Spirit, grateful for your faithfulness, oh God. And so we've invited you in as we've sang together, as we've worshiped together, as we've declared the goodness and greatness and grace of him who brought us out of darkness into his wonderful light. And so now, oh God, we invite you to open our eyes and ears, open our hearts, open our spirits to behold wonderful things from your law. As the old hymn says, sing them over again to me, your wonderful words of life. God, may your word be wonderful words, life-giving words for us this morning. In the name of Christ, God's people together said, Amen. Good to see you. Uh, for those of you who don't know, we've been journeying through the book of Esther, the Old Testament book of Esther, and today we're concluding our series on Esther, and we kind of left last week between Esther chapter 4 and Esther chapter 5, where there's this kind of grand pause in the story, and everybody kind of holds their breath to see what's going to happen. And here's what we established last week as we studied in the book of Esther. It's this, is that imperfect people with a finite perspective and limited influence, if you add all that stuff, it equals maximum trouble. Us, all of us, imperfect people with a finite perspective, we don't have that same providence that God has. We don't see the future and the past together. We just see a snapshot, a snippet of what's going on, not just in our own lives in terms of time, but even globally and in terms of history. And, and, and we have limited influence. You know, we can't control people. We can't manage outcomes. We don't always get the consequences that we want. We have limited influence. And when you add all those things together, you get maximum trouble. But, but with God, the equation is different. And all the variables are different, and so the outcome is different. With God, he's perfect. He's got an infinite perspective. He sees the future and the past together. He sees the whole thing. He's got limitless influence. That is to say that he is sovereign and in control of all things, and when you add those up, you get incredible possibility. You get incredible possibility. You get glorious potential. You get maximum kingdom impact. You get things that the Bible would say was far beyond what we could have even asked or imagined. We couldn't even dream up the stuff that this perfect God with an infinite perspective and limitless influence can dream up. Even given a blank slate, we couldn't come up with this stuff. And you're about to see it happen in the book of Esther. So to jump into our uh, study this morning, and I just want to let you know that I'm going to share with you six truths, six big truths from the book of Esther, and I know that I promised each week we were going to pull out one big truth, one big truth from the book of Esther, but I couldn't stop at one this week, I couldn't stop at two, I couldn't stop at three, I finally stopped at six. And I don't know about you, but when I study uh, the Word of God, and maybe you feel the same way too, I don't always kind of learn new things about God. I do, I do, a lot of times I do, but sometimes it's something that I knew before, but I just need to be reminded about. Have you ever had that happen? You know what I mean? So, so you're studying the book. You're like, you know, I, I learned today that God is gracious. Well, I kind of knew that already, but I need to know that right now for something that's going on in my life. It's just, it's just especially relevant. It's just especially pertinent. You ever, you ever, that ever happened to you? I hope so. 
So what I want to share with you this morning is six big truths from the book of Esther that are especially pertinent to me right now and what's going on in my life. And I hope that they're the same for you. I hope that you can be reminded about the character and goodness and grace of our God this morning as we conclude our study in the book of Esther. So let's remind ourselves what's happening for those of you who have been journeying with us the last couple of weeks. For those of you who are just joining us, let's set the stage a little bit, catch you up to speed as to where we're going to start our story this morning. First of all, we've got a king. The king's name is Xerxes. Esther, uh, the book of Esther would call him King Ahasuerus. That's his Hebrew name. This is his Greek name. And King Xerxes is, is impetuous and licentious and egomaniacal. He thinks very, very highly of himself. So highly, in fact, that he divorces his wife, Queen Vashti, because she won't parade herself around naked in front of his drunken friends. And he kicks her out and subsequently goes to war against the Greeks. You can even learn about this from history books and gets his rear end handed to him. I know you're not supposed to say that in church, but he gets absolutely whipped. And he comes back to his kingdom, that's the Persian Empire, with kind of his tail between his legs a little bit. And his advisors gather around and they say, hey, Xerxes, here's the deal. We want to cheer you up. And he says, well, that sounds great because I'm not too, too cheery right now. And they say, we're going to gather a bunch of young, unmarried virgins all throughout the Persian Empire. And you can sleep with them one at a time, one night at a time. And then at the end of all that stuff, you can decide who you want to be your next queen. And Xerxes, being a moron, thinks that's a good idea. And so they begin to conscript these young women against their will, and they take them, many of them out of healthy situations and healthy homes, and they force them into a harem, and they force them into a year of preparation before they go in to be with King Xerxes. And King Xerxes eventually selects one of those women who he loved more than any of the other women, and her name was Esther. She ends up becoming queen in the Persian Empire. Little does he know that <laughs> the heart of the king is like a river in the hand of God, and he can turn it wherever he wills. So King Esther thought he was choosing, king, king Esther, King Xerxes thought he was choosing Esther. That's right. Um, he, he, he kind of did, but it really was God. Let's just be honest. We're about to see that happen. It was God that exalted Esther to be queen in the Persian Empire. Now, Esther is a Jew. Esther is one of 15 million Jews, in fact, that are living in captivity in the Persian Empire in the 5th century B.C., but she's not come clean about her nationality. Xerxes does not know that he is marrying a Jew here. She's not been upfront about who she is and her background. One more character in the story, then I'm going to tell you something about this character. The last character is Mordecai. Mordecai is Esther's adoptive dad. When Esther was a kid, she lost both of her parents. We're not sure how, but she did. So Mordecai was her uncle or cousin. They're related for sure, but Mordecai adopted Esther and took her in to his own home and raised her as his own. So eventually, when Esther is exalted to become queen in the Persian Empire... Mordecai hears about a plot against the king's life. And we're actually going to point that out this morning from the scripture. So if you have your Bible, open it to the book of Esther. If you don't have your Bible, there's one in the seat back in front of you. There's someone in the aisle with you that has a Bible. You can look on with them. We always put the Bible up here on the screen so you can read along with us. And so we're going to read about Mordecai learning, learning about a plot against King Xerxes' life. It's Esther chapter 2. We'll pick it up in verse 21. 
reads this way. It says, in those days, I'm going to wait just pages flipping until I hear those, those pages stop. So I want you to have the text in front of you. I don't want to get ahead of you here. Three, two, one, and go. Esther chapter 2, verse 21. Here we go. It says, in those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthon and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold. Basically, these are the king's thugs. And I don't know how you become a bodyguard as a eunuch, but that's beside the point. The point is what they would do back in this day is they would castrate these individuals so there was no fear of them having a relationship with the king's queen. So these are two of the king's eunuchs, and they're bodyguards. Does anybody watch, like, mafia shows? Do you watch, do you like mob movies and mafia movies? You know, like the, like the guys with the earpieces in, they're like big, you know, big mafia guys. This is Big Don and Teresh, just the Persian Empire. They're thugs. They're the king's bodyguards. Look what happens. They became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. Now, I want you to know that's not lay hands on like we just laid hands on Andy. This is lay hands on like kill. They desire to kill King Xerxes. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai. And he told it to Queen Esther. And Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows. And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Now we're going to do something similar to what we did last week because we need to tuck this information away because it's critical as we move forward in the book of Esther. Here we go. Uh, Where was it recorded? Book of the Chronicles. Say it with me one more time. Where was it recorded? It. That meaning Mordecai saving the king's bacon. Figuring out that there was a plot against his life. Passing it on to his adoptive daughter who's queen in the Persian Empire. She passes it on to the king in the name of Mordecai. And it was written down in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. So the king knows how his bacon got saved. He doesn't think it was Esther. He doesn't think it was Big Don and Teresh. He doesn't think it was one of his other uh, bodyguards or one of his other thugs. He knows exactly who did it. However, he does not thank Mordecai. He doesn't honor Mordecai. He doesn't give Mordecai an award or a badge or a key to the city or anything like that. And, and nowadays, we think that's kind of neat and nice when we honor a hero, when we recognize a hero, and when we thank a hero. But 2,500 years ago in the Persian Empire, it was not kind of nice. It was a cultural expectation. Like, this would have been unfair, even unjust, for Mordecai not to receive honor from King Xerxes for saving his life. So Mordecai, at the very least now, would have walked away and thought, man, that's kind of surprising that he wouldn't have honored me for saving his life. That's at the very least. At the very most, Mordecai could have been disappointed, angry, or bitter, and rightly so in that culture. He should have been honored for what he did, for saving the king's life. But he doesn't go to the king and says, you need to honor me. He doesn't go to anybody and says, this is unfair. He doesn't go to Esther and he, tell the king to r- rectify this injustice. This went all wrong. This went all awry. He accepts a challenge in his life, unfairness, injustice, and difficulty because he knows that God's in control. That the sovereign God can use challenges, difficulties, injustice, and unfairness in our life for his glory and for our good. Aren't you glad? I'm going to say that one more time. 
that the sovereign God of the universe can use injustice, even injustice in your life, even unfairness, even when things don't go your way and they should, even when someone has it out for you, even when something happens to you that's not fair, God can even use that for his glory and for our good, and he does in the case of Mordecai. So if you're jotting down notes, jot this down, because this is big truth number one. You ready? God uses bull weevils. God uses bull weevils. What I had for point number one was uh, God can use injustice in your life for his glory and for our good, but I like this better. And I'm going to tell you why I like this better. Because there's a town in Alabama in the southern United States where I'm from, and I'm not from Alabama, but I am from the southern United States, and the town in Alabama was primarily a cotton town. The whole uh, market, the whole economy was based on cotton, so all these farmers would grow cotton. So one year, these farmers were growing cotton, and everything was going great, and everything was moving along until a little bug infested their crops, and that little bug is called a bull weevil. Look it up online later. They're ugly little buggers. I'm telling you what. Woo! They're nasty. And bull weevils, this is a true story, by the way. Bull weevils, this little bug, ate the entire cotton crop. They just destroyed it. So now the economy, now the market, now people can't eat, people can't pay their rent because bull weevils ate their crop. So the farmers all got together and they looked at each other and they said, what are we going to do? Like, how do we fix this? How do we rectify this? What what are we going to do? And the farmers all said, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to plant different crops now. We're going to plant something different than cotton because bull weevils are eating our cotton. So you're going to plant watermelon. I'm going to plant kale. And you're going to plant zucchini. And you're going to plant corn. And you're going to plant potatoes. And they planted all of those different crops. And guess what? Those crops grew to like more than what the cotton grew. So not only were they able to pay their rent and pay their bills, they were able to kind of have their cake and eat it too. They made more money than they thought they were going to make. They had kind of icing on top of their cake, all because bull weevils ate their cotton crop. They renamed that town, by the way. It's called Enterprise, Alabama now because of that situation. And, and there's, a, there's a monument in the city square in the very middle of town, and it's a huge statue to a what? A bull weevil. Could you imagine living in a town where you're like, meet me by the bull weevil statue? That's Enterprise, Alabama. And what started as a challenge, what started as a difficulty, what started out as injustice and unfairness became a blessing to the town of Enterprise, Alabama, simply because they responded to it, not by going, oh, well, this stinks, and this is lame, and this is unfair, because they said, okay, so what next? So what are we going to do? I will tell you, men and women, you have a bull weevil in your life right now. Do not nudge your spouse. Do not nudge your spouse and tell them they're your bull weevil, okay? But you've got a bull weevil in your life right now. And I don't want to make light of it because, you know, when we say bull weevil, you're like, you know what? I, I'm, I'm, in a, I'm in a difficult relationship or I got a boss that's really unfair or my marriage is breaking down or, I, you know, I can't pay my rent right now. I mean, th- those, are, those are far more, more than bull weevils. Those are injustices. Those are challenges and difficulties, very, very difficult things in your life. But our sovereign God in his mind, you know what they are? Just bull weevils. Just bull weevils. I have a friend that used to say, tis but a small thing to God. So even when Mordecai wasn't honored, even when injustice was done, even when it was unfair, God will use it. We'll see it here in a minute because he uses bull weevils. 
He uses the challenges and difficulties in your life. He uses injustices in your life for his glory and for your good. You may not know. You may not realize it. You may not get it. You may not see it until we're on the other side of glory. But he will use bull weevils in your life for his glory and for our good. That's truth number one. There's a fourth character in the book of Esther. We've got King Xerxes. We've got Esther. We've got Mordecai. We've got a man named Haman. We've got a man named Haman. Haman was an anti-Semitic genocidal maniac. He was a manipulative jerk. And he manipulated King Xerxes. By the way, King Xerxes was not terribly difficult to manipulate. But he manipulated King King Xerxes to promote him to become prime minister in the Persian Empire. Not only did he manipulate him to become prime minister in the Persian Empire, he manipulated King Xerxes into giving him his little signet ring so he could issue whatever edict he he wanted. And since he hated the Jews, the edict that he issued was, we're going to kill all the Jews. 100 million people, historians estimate, in the Persian Empire at this time. 15 million of them were Jews living under captivity. And Haman, Haman wants to kill them all. Now, it's interesting to me that Haman is so haphazard and flippant that he doesn't even select the date on his own. He does what they call cast lots. He kind of rolled dice. Whatever the dice came up, and it was like, oh, good, that sounds like a good date. It's about 11 months from now. We'll just say that's the date where we're going to exterminate all the Jews. So the edict goes out to the entire Persian Empire, and everybody knows this is the day we're going to kill the nation of Israel. This is the day we're just going to slaughter all the Jews. And they can't defend themselves. Why? Because they're an enslaved people living in captivity. They're not allowed to gather together. They're not allowed to have weapons. They're not allowed to do anything about it. So all these Jews are living in fear, knowing that this day is coming, knowing that it's right around the corner where Haman's edict is going to get exacted, and they are going to die, every last one of them. So Mordecai knows about this plot because, or knows about this edict because everybody in the Persian Empire knew about this edict. So Mordecai goes to his adopted daughter, Esther, now Queen Esther, by the way, and says, hey, girl, you got to do something about this. You got to talk to your man here. We got to figure this thing out because this is not happening. Well, Esther's terrified for a couple reasons. One, if she goes before the king without an invitation, she gets killed on the spot unless the king saves her bacon. That's number one. Number two, remember, he doesn't know she's a Jew. He doesn't know that the edict that this guy issued on his behalf is going to slaughter his wife. He doesn't know. So when Mordecai says, girl, you got to do something about it, she goes, let me think about it for three days, please. And so finally, at the end of Esther chapter four, she says, all right, that's it. I'm going before him. I cannot stand by and watch this injustice happen. I'm going to rail against it. I'm going to push against it. I'm going to do what I can. And if it means my life, that's what I'm going to do. End of Esther chapter 4. If I perish, I perish, she says. If they execute me, they execute me. But I am going to stand up for my people. That's where we pick up our story in Esther chapter 5. If you've got your Bibles, you already have them open to 2. Flip over to chapter 5 and we'll pick it up in verse 1. It says, on the third day, that's the third day after Esther had been fasting for three days, and, and um, the implication is that she's been praying, we're not sure, but she was fasting for three days, thinking about whether or not she would approach the king. So on the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace, in front of the king's quarters, while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room, opposite the entrance to the palace. Stop there. 
that one verse says king three times, palace twice, and throne room twice. Who's in control here? King Xerxes. King Xerxes. He has ultimate authority and control. Remember, if she walks in the room, he doesn't even have to say execute her. He doesn't even have to say that. If he does not utter a word, if he just sits there, they'll put a bag over her head, walk her out, and kill her. He is in full and total control. Esther has put her life into his hands. Keep reading. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, not kneeling, by the way, love that. She comes in with a request. Hey, hey, we're going to have a little chit-chat here. She won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. This is good news. And everyone who's in the story right now and everyone who's reading the story after the fact breathes a collective sigh of relief that Esther's going to make it. And the king said to her, what is it, Queen Esther? What's your request? It shall be given you, even to the half of my kingdom. Now, honestly, when I first read this, I thought the king was being hyperbolic. I thought that he was using exaggerated language to say that he, he would give her, you know, hey, what do you need? What do you want? I'll, I'll be happy to give it to you. Like, you know when you say, I'm so hungry I could eat a horse? Like, you really can't eat a horse, but you say that because you're really, really hungry. Like, I'm looking at that going, well, he's not going to really give her half of his kingdom. He's just saying that because he really likes her and he thinks she's smoking hot, which, go back and read Esther. That's literally what he says. Like, I don't think he's actually serious. But you know what's funny is that history tells us that when kings made promises like this, they had to keep them. In fact, in fact, there are instances in history where a queen would walk into a king's um, palace or a throne room like this, and the king would say, what is it, O queen? I will give you up to half my kingdom. And she goes, good, that's what I want. And they would have to give it. So when he says this, it's not just hyperbolic language. It's not just exaggerated language. It's a promise. He's serious. He'll give her up to half his kingdom. Now, look at me now. Look at me. If you were Esther, what would you say? What do you, what, if you're Esther, what do you want? Your people to get saved, right? Nod. You want, you want your people saved. So if the king says, I'll give you up to half my kingdom, what do you say? Save my people, right? Look what Esther says. Esther said, if it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast I've prepared for the king. Now, it's curious, isn't it? I'll give you up to half my kingdom. I'd like to have you over for dinner. It's interesting, isn't it? So the king and Haman, these two characters, King Xerxes and Haman, take Esther up on her invitation. They show up to her house for dinner, and she's prepared a big feast. And then again, the king looks at her and goes, I'll give you up to half my kingdom. Queen Esther, what is it that you want? And again, she passes on the opportunity. She says, um, you know what I'd really want is I'd like you to come back for dinner tomorrow night. Second dinner invitation. Not kidding. So commentators and Bible scholars would say, well, you know, Esther knew it wasn't the right time. Esther knew it wasn't the right place. Or, or they'd say, well, Esther wanted Haman to be there. Well, the second time that she was given the opportunity to make the request, Haman was there. She passed on it the second time as well. First with the king in his throne room, and the second time with Haman actually in the room when she had prepared a feast. So I ask myself, why? Why does she pass on this opportunity twice? I'm going to put my Bible right here. I'm going to walk over here because this is not in the Bible. This is conjecture on my part. This is guessing. But it's an educated guess. 
Because remember how we talked about Esther being imperfect last week? You remember that? That these aren't perfect people making perfect decisions all the time. That these aren't flawless individuals with rock-solid faith and they're sinless and obedient all the time. She, she struggles. She's an imperfect individual. I think she's still a little scared. I do. And I think her fear is holding her back a little bit. I think her faith is yet imperfect. Now, now, look, now look at me. Wouldn't you be a little scared still? Because at dinner, who you're standing before is your husband who could take your life and an anti-Semitic genocidal maniac who hates you and your people so much so that he'd be willing to slaughter all 15 million of you and not bat an eye. I'd be scared too. But here's the thing. Esther steps out in courageous faith. Esther, this is, this is courage, by the way. Courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is doing the right thing in the face of fear. So look up here on the screen. This is my big truth number two. You ready? You don't have to be perfect to be brave. You don't have to be perfect to be brave. Esther was not perfect. Her faith was not perfect. Her obedience was not perfect, but she was brave. She did have courage. She did step out in faith and trust God and say, even shaking in my boots, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do my best. You don't have to be perfect to be brave. Now, for you and me, for me, for me, for me, and maybe this, is, maybe this is good for you, maybe it's helpful for you. If not, you can just pass on it. We'll go to truth number three here in a minute. But for me, this is especially applicable in the world of evangelism. When I'm talking to people about my faith that don't know Jesus, because I get afraid just like you do, that they're gonna reject me. I get afraid that I'm not gonna have all the answers. I'm gonna get afraid that my apologetics aren't perfect. I'm gonna get afraid that my Bible knowledge isn't perfect. I'm going to get afraid that whatever, I, I, I'm not perfect just like you're not perfect, just like Esther wasn't perfect, but I can still step out in courage. I can still step out in faith. I can still say to somebody, Jesus made a difference in my life. And when they ask you to explain all the whole Bible and when they ask you, you know, in the book of Leviticus chapter 18, like nobody knows that. But you can be brave, you can have courage, you can share your faith, you can tell somebody about what it means to walk with Jesus and the difference that he's made in your life, even when you're not perfect. And let me just, let me just caveat here, especially when you're not perfect. You don't have to be perfect to be brave. So Esther steps into the king's throne room. He asks, what do you need? I'll give you up to half my kingdom. She says, come to dinner. Haman and the king come to dinner. He asks again, what do you need up to half my kingdom? She says, come to dinner tomorrow night. And despite Esther's fear for me that seems to hold her back, she still steps out in courageous faith and lets God work. And God does work. God does work. Watch what happens after the meal. When everything is done, when all the desserts had and everybody's headed home, the king heads back to the palace. Esther heads back to her palace. And Haman leaves, and when he leaves the feast, he runs into Mordecai. Now, Mordecai's already refused to bow before Haman, because Haman issued another edict that says, everybody in the Persian Empire has always got to bow to me every time they see me. And Mordecai's already resisted once, and he resists again. When Haman sees him, he walks by him, and Mordecai just stands there, and he goes, what's up, slick? <laughs> I'm not interested in bowing before you. We've already had this conversation. And Haman, again, is 
infuriated. He's angry. His anger burns within him. So much so that he spends the entire night, and I'm not kidding, he spends the entire night building a 75-foot tall gallows on which he plans to hang Mordecai. He hates this man so much, he won't even wait the 10 months down the road when they're going to exterminate all the Jews. i got to get this guy strung up now. I've had it with him. The other thing that's happening is back at the castle, the king can't sleep. Look at Esther chapter 6. King can't sleep. It says, on that night, the king could not sleep. This is why, Morde- or why Haman, while Haman is building his gallows for Mordecai, the king can't sleep. And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds. What does he ask for? The Chronicles. Where was Mordecai's heroic act recorded? The Chronicles. Ha-ha. You don't think God was in that deal? And they were read before the king. Now, just something humorous. <laughs> How many of you serve on boards, any kind of board at all? Like a church board or a business board, any kind of board? Okay. Do you know what he's asking for here? He's asking for the meeting minutes. He's asking for the kingdom minutes. And, and because I serve on a, on a, on a board or two, um, I know that if, if you can't sleep, the kingdom minutes are the best thing that they should read to you. Okay, That's, that, that will solve your problem. I told Jonathan Hatt, who's the secretary of our board, your, your minutes are so boring, they put me to sleep. No pictures, no nothing. And they're worth it, they're fantastic, and we have to do it, and it's all that. But if you need to sleep, and you don't have Ambien, ask for the meeting minutes. And this is what the king asked for. And they were read aloud before the king. Keep going. And it was found written... How Mordecai told about Big Thon and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. So all of a sudden now he knows and he remembers. Keep going. And the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? Did we do anything for this guy? The king's young men who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. Nothing has been done for this man who saved your life. Now it's the wee hours of the morning and Xerxes goes, we are not waiting another minute to figure this out. We are going to honor him right now. Who can help me do it? Who's in the palace? And the young men said to him, well, it's like four o'clock in the morning, dude, so it's kind of empty. The only guy we know that's here is Haman. Why? Because he's been up all night building a gallows. So watch this. Watch this. This is hilarious to me. This, I think the Bible is so funny. Verse 10. King calls Haman in, verse 10. He said, then the king said to Haman, hurry, take the robes and the horse, if you have said, and so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate, leave nothing out that you have mentioned. Because the king calls Haman in, and he says to Haman, hey, look, um, who, like, what should be done for the man that the king delights to honor? I want to honor a man. I want to lift him up. I want to exalt him. What should I do? And Haman says, well, Haman thinks it's him, right? Because Haman's an arrogant jerk. Haman thinks, oh, good. Uh, that's, well, let, let me see, king. Well, well get, get your horse and put that man on. Get your robe and, and have him parade around the whole city. Such should be done for the, when the king likes to honor and delights to honor. And so, and so Haman tells the king, and the king goes, great, that sounds awesome. G- grab Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king gate and leave nothing out that you have mentioned. Could you imagine Haman's face? This is so funny to me. It's so stupid. Like, Haman is so stupid. 
I can just imagine his jaw dropping to the floor, this arrogant jerk that's trying to mass genocide Jews. And, and King Xerxes goes, okay, so here's what you're going to do. That guy that you won't bow to, that you just spent the entire night building a gallows for, which King Xerxes doesn't know, by the way, you've got to parade him around the city on my horse wearing my robe going, such is the one the king delights to honor. I think that's funny. I think the Bible's funny. All right, where are we at here? Where are we at? I don't know why you would know that. All right. Next verse. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate. Haman returned to his house mourning with his head covered. I think that's funny too. He goes to his house and he tells his wife, he's like, look, here's what happened to me. They asked me who the king, what, what should be done for the man the king delights to honor. And I said all this stuff. And he made me do it for Mordecai the Jew. And his wife, this is, this is like not one of my big truths, by the way, from the book of Esther, but this is men, listen. His wife says to him, look, here's the deal. If you are trying to like rail against a Jew here and, and you're, you're going to war with Mordecai the Jew, you will lose. You will lose. That's the NLT, the New Lucas translation. You're going to lose. So don't. Don't. But Haman's too proud, too arrogant. He does it anyway. So men, listen to your wives. All right. Finally, at dinner that night, after, after Haman has led Mordecai around all day, honoring Mordecai, this is the third attempt now Esther has, the third opportunity that she has to make her request before the king, and it's in Esther chapter 7. We're going to read the entire thing. Here it is. Verse 1, so the king and Haman went into feast with Queen Esther. This is her second dinner invitation, and on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What's your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what's your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. What's she doing? She's disclosing her nationality, isn't she? She's saying, I, I, I'm a Jew. I worship Yahweh. This is my people. Keep going, verse four. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. By the way, she pulled that language directly from Haman's original edict. Destroyed, killed, and annihilated. That's a direct quote. Keep going. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I'd have been silent. For our affliction is not compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Esther, Who is he and where is he and who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and an enemy, the wicked Haman. Could you imagine Haman's face now? Oh, no. No. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen, as well he should be. Verse 7. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking, went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. So listen now. What started as a scared 14-year-old Jewish girl conscripted against her will is now queen in the Persian kingdom, courageous enough to say she's a God worshiper, and this genocidal maniac is begging for his life to her. And that God turning the tables? Now that's kind of cool. Picture this now. In 5th century BC, people would recline to eat. So Esther is laying down, and Haman is at her feet begging for his life. The king is outside in his anger, you know, counting backwards from 10 to let himself cool off. And he comes back into the room. Look what happened. When the king returned from the palace garden, this is verse 8, to the place where they were drinking wine, as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was, and the king said, will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? 
He's begging for his life, and the king thinks that he's molesting her. He's trying to, you know, whatever, like, you know, attack her, do violence to her. And as the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. This is not good for Haman. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high, 75 feet. And the king said, hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. And the wrath of the king abated. For those of you who like blood and gore and guts, when they say hang back then, they literally mean impale on a stake. So 75 feet in the air, they took Haman and impaled him uh, up, on, up on these gallows that he had built personally for Mordecai. Now, that's funny. If you have a dark sense of humor, that's funny. And I do. Ryan. So problem number one is solved. Listen close now. Problem number one is solved. Because Haman, the genocidal maniac, is gone. But we still got problem number two. What's problem number two? The edict has already been issued that we're going to exterminate the entire Jewish population 10 months from now. And the Bible tells us in the book of Esther that that law was issued and, and included in the laws of the Medes and the Persians. And if you read it, it's like, well, that doesn't really make any difference. It does make a difference because the laws of the Medes and the Persians were irrevocable. The edict could not be revised. It could not be taken back. Furthermore, back then, kings were equal with gods. And God can't make a mistake. So if the king issued this edict, even though it was manipulated, even though it was Haman, even, but the, it was the king's signet ring, we can't take this back. So 10 months from now, the Jewish population is going to be exterminated in the Persian Empire. And the king goes, what can we do about it? What can we do? And he goes to Mordecai. Now he's looking to Mordecai for advice. Now this is good. Now it's better. And he goes to Mordecai and he goes, what can we do about this? Because 10 months from now, the Persian Empire is still going to rise up and exterminate 15 million Jews. We can't change the laws of the Medes and the Persians. Mordecai says this, how about this? We let the Jews defend themselves. Just let them defend themselves. Because, because as a captive people, they're not really allowed to gather in groups. As a captive people, they're not allowed to wield weapons. As a captive people, they're not allowed to defend themselves. Why don't you issue an edict and say that they can defend themselves? So the king says, well, that sounds like a good idea. He issues an edict and it says the Jews can defend themselves. And that edict is passed out throughout the entire Persian Empire. And the Jews start to party. And they're like, yes, this is great. We can actually defend ourselves. We can actually gather together. So the day comes and all the enemies of the nation of Israel rise up and they attack the nation of Israel. And the nation of Israel defended themselves. It says that the fear of God struck in the heart of the enemies of the Jews. And the nation of Israel slaughtered 75,000 of their enemies on that very day because of the provision of God. Now, some of you, some of you, would look at the Old Testament and you read it and go, man, God is really violent. Man, this is, a, this is a violent book and a violent God. Okay, first of all, it's 2,500 years ago. We're talking about clans and tribes and nomadic groups and Persian Empire. I mean, this is a whole different culture. This is not the tolerance that we're used to in Canada here, okay, 2,500 years ago. That's number one. The second thing that the Bible tells us is very, very interesting about the way that the nation of Israel responded. First, what the Bible tells us is the nation of Israel only defended itself in this particular situation. They did not go on the attack. Someone else was the aggressor. Someone else was the enemy. Someone else sought to do violence. All they were doing was defending themselves, number one. Number two, 
The Bible tells us that Haman was an Agagite, descendant from Agag, the king of the Amalekites. The Amalekites really loved themselves because they would attack the weak and the disabled and the old and the children and try to annihilate a tribe that way, try to annihilate a kingdom that way. And the Jews in this particular case said, no, 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 that's not what we're going to do. They do not go after women and children. They only kill men who are attacking them, warriors who are attacking them. They didn't just stand by and let these guys kill them. They said, look, you're going to pull out a sword. I'm going to pull out one too. The third thing that the Bible tells us that I think this is fascinating is that the Jews didn't take any of the plunder. So when they killed these people, there would have been riches available now. There would have been cattle available now. There would have been livestock available now. There would have been all kinds of things that would have made them more wealthy, but the nation of Israel didn't touch any of that. You know why? Because it wasn't about that. It was simply about the provision of God and defending themselves. Now, God issues a decree through Mordecai that the nation of Israel, once a year, should set aside a couple of days to party to celebrate with feasting and gladness, the Bible says, the provision of God. And it's interesting to me because when Haman originally chose the date where the entire nation of Israel was going to get slaughtered, um, it says that he cast lots. He rolled dice. And those dice were called pur, P-U-R, pur. And to plural a word in Hebrew, you add an I-M, so it's purim. And so that's what they call the feast of purim. That's just funny to me. Again, a little bit of irony for you, something amusing from the book of Esther. And God issues a decree that every year the nation of Israel gathers and celebrates the provision of God and celebrates the goodness of God with feasting and gladness. And it's awesome because if you were to go to the Feast of Purim now, what you would see, it's like, it's like, it's like you know when Star Wars comes out and everybody comes like dressed as C-3PO and like, you know, Luke Skywalker and, you know, stormtroopers and stuff? That's what, that's what the Jewish culture does now. They come dressed as like Esther or Mordecai or heroes in the story. They come in costume. And when the book of Esther is read, they'll get to Haman's name, and everybody stamps their feet and says, let his name be blotted out. And then when Mordecai and Esther's name are mentioned, everybody cheers, yay, those are our heroes with feasting and gladness for 2,500 years. And this book of Esther is the only recording, the only account that gives us history of the Feast of Purim. And they're still doing it now this day with feasting and gladness, celebrating the goodness and provision of God. So here's truth number four. Ready? Partying is biblical. Uh That's my truth number four. See, look, because here, here's the thing. For some of you, this word means drinking to excess up in the club. That's what that means? Can, can we just redeem this word, please, this morning? Can we just say we're not going to let the world hijack this word and make it something that it's not? This is feasting and gladness and celebration before God. Because as Christians, we're good at the guilt thing, aren't we? Oh, man, are we good at the guilt thing. I miss church two Sundays in a row. You know, I feel very guilty. Can, can, we, can, we, can we start doing more of this kind of stuff where we celebrate together and look at one another and say, isn't God good? Do you remember that time I had a bull weevil in my life and God used it for his glory and my good? Do you remember that? Let's party together. Let's celebrate together. You remember that time God was faithful, that we thought it was going to turn out this way and it was going to be bad and it was going to be horrible and God flipped that thing on its head and then the next thing you know, prosperity and goodness and the faithfulness and favor of God. And even though I still have bull weevils in my life, and even though I've got no idea what God is doing with this difficulty and challenge in my life, I can still party and celebrate because I know one day on the other side of glory, I will see clearly, not as in a mirror dimly, I'll see a full picture. 
And so I can celebrate with feasting and gladness before the Lord. Truth number five. Truth number five. It was a good reminder for me this week. The book of Esther never mentions the name of God. One of only two books in the Bible that does not mention the name of God. And it says that Esther fasted, and the implication is that she prayed, but we're not exactly sure that she did. And there are no prayers in the book of Esther. Nobody calls out, God help us, God save us. God essentially is silent throughout the whole book of Esther. You ever felt like God is silent in your life? In the midst of sin, challenge, difficulty, circumstances? In the midst of spiritually dry seasons, you ever felt like God was quiet and silent in your life? Here's what the book of Esther teaches us. The silence doesn't equal absence. But just because God's quiet, just because his name isn't mentioned, just because we look at you know, governments around the world and countries around the world that are trying to thwart the name of God or quiet the name of God, he's still there, believe it or not. So, some of those countries, to be honest, he is really there. And in your own life, it's true too. Even in the midst of sin, not just other sin, but even in the midst of your sin, when God seems silent, it doesn't mean he's absent. When you're going through difficulty, challenge, or pain, not just pain, but like deep, dark pain, depression, and broken marriages, and business failure, when God seems absent, when he doesn't answer you at all, and you call out to him, and all you get is crickets on the other end, it doesn't mean he's gone. Read the book of Esther. He is always there. He is always present. He is always working things out for his glory and for your good. Bank on it. Last one. Last one, and I love this one. Reminder from the book of Esther. No matter how difficult the situation may seem, no matter how impossible it may be, a perfect God with an infinite perspective and limitless influence equals incredible possibility. He is the victor. He is going to claim victory. He is always going to turn the situation on its head, again, for his glory and for our good. So God always wins. (laughs) God always wins. Every time. Like every time. Like, I, I, I kind of want to, like, extrapolate on this a little bit. I kind of want to talk about it a little bit. But, but could you just let, it, just let it hit you real quick? Just let it sink in. He always wins. No matter what. No matter how impossible the situation may seem. He wins every time. And guess what? Guess what? Even when it seems like he's not winning, he's winning. You think that Charlie Sheen invented that hashtag winning? You think he invented that? No, that's God. God is winning every time. And one day, one day, Jesus is going to crack open the sky. He's going to enter this planet. And you know what he's going to say? I win. It's over. All that injustice, all that unfairness, all those bull weevils in your life, all the sickness and death and disease and broken relationships and challenge and difficulty and gossip and backbiting and fractured this and all the cosmos even fractured and the, 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 the creation itself even groaning and longing for the return of Jesus. He's going to come back and go, I win. It's over. I've been winning since day one. And I'm claiming ultimate victory even now. God wins every single time. Now, listen, if you're a Christian, that's cool. Could you, could you imagine if you knew right now that the Raptors were going to win in six? Okay, they're not, by the way, but could you imagine? 
Could you imagine? It's like, it takes all the tension out, doesn't it? I mean, it would take all the fun out of watching the series. The fun's already out of watching the series, but like it takes all the tension out, doesn't it? And when you know that God always wins, when you know that he's going to sweep the series, it's like, hey, cool. Let it happen. Not a laissez-faire, apathetic attitude, but hey, I'm going to get on that team. I'm going to get on the winning team. I'm going to bring the kingdom here and now in this world. And one day Jesus is going to crack open the sky because God always wins. We're going to respond together in song even now. And I would ask you to stand as the band and worship team comes up. And we're going to sing together about the ultimate victory of Jesus. One day when he cracks open the sky and we go be with him and we're going to sing together that our trust is in Christ alone. Would you pray with me as these guys come back up? God, we love you. We praise you. Remind us today of your faithfulness to us, of your goodness to us. Remind us that you can be trusted, that we can step out in courageous faith. Remind us that you're using the bull weevils in our life to draw us nearer to you for your glory and our good. Remind us, oh God, today of your control and sovereignty and providence. We trust you, we love you, and we sing together even now. In Christ's name, God's people said, amen.